0: Hello, and welcome to this day in history class, a show that shines a light on the ups and downs of everyday history. I'm Gabe Bluzier, and today we're looking at one of the worst peacetime disasters in US history, including the surprising effect it had on the sitting president's love life. A quick warning though, today's episode features descriptions of graphic violence, including self-harm, and may be upsetting for some listeners. The day was February 28, 1844. An American naval cannon exploded during a peacetime demonstration, killing six spectators and wounding many others. The accident occurred on what was essentially a pleasure cruise down the Potomac River. Itching to show off his recently completed warship, the USS Princeton, U.S. Navy Captain Robert Stockton, had organized several afternoon excursions for Washington's social elite. By February 28th, he had already taken out dozens of newspaper reporters and members of Congress on earlier trips, but the cruise that day was meant to be the grandest of all. The guest list included none other than the president himself, John Tyler, as well as former first lady Dolly Madison, most of Tyler's cabinet, a number of congressional leaders, and dozens of other important guests. In total, nearly 400 people boarded the Princeton that day, and every one of them would later wish they hadn't. President Tyler attended the event during a difficult time in his life, both personally and professionally. He had ascended to the presidency three years earlier, following the untimely death of Whig President William Henry Harrison, to whom he had been vice president. And while Tyler had hoped to secure a full term in the presidential election that fall, he hadn't made many allies during his time in office. In fact, he had vetoed so many bills passed by the Whig Congress that he was eventually kicked out of his own party. He then tried going back to his old party, the Democrats, but they didn't want anything to do with him either. Tyler's status as a political pariah is likely part of the reason he agreed to Stockton's cruise. Rubbing elbows with a ship full of political dignitaries probably seemed like a good way to reconcile with former allies and maybe win some endorsements for the upcoming election. That said, Tyler seems to have had more on his mind that day than just politics. He was also looking for love. Following the death of his wife Letitia in 1842, Tyler began courting Julia Gardner, the youngest daughter of a wealthy New York lawyer, Colonel David Gardner. On the day of the cruise, Julia had not yet responded to the widowed president's latest marriage proposal. It's possible Tyler hoped to tip the odds in his favor with a big fancy boat trip, as he had not only invited Julia, but her father and elder sister as well. As for Tyler's would-be love boat, the Princeton, it sailed under the command of his friend and political supporter, Captain Robert F. Stockton. Since 1838, Stockton had lobbied for the creation of a new, state-of-the-art warship, a kind of proof of concept for how to modernize the Navy. His proposals had always been rejected by the higher-ups in his department, but after President Tyler backed the project, it was full steam ahead. The goal was to build a warship that would put the U.S. on par with the British Navy. To do this, Stockton recruited a renowned Swedish inventor and engineer named John Ericsson to help with the design. The ship's construction began in Philadelphia in 1841 and was completed two years later. The final product was every bit as innovative as Stockton had hoped. The average warship of the day had clunky paddle wheels and an exposed engine, features which not only limited the ship's range but also made obvious targets for enemy fire. In contrast, the USS Princeton relied on a set of screw propellers powered by an engine that was safely concealed within the hull. The 164-foot-long warship had another advantage as well. It was a hybrid. In addition to its coal-fired boilers, the Princeton could also be run under sail. It even featured a collapsible smokestack, meant to reduce wind friction and boost its speed. However, Captain Stockton and his team didn't stop at a revolutionary propulsion system. They also equipped the Princeton with more firepower than any other ship in the fleet, Two 12-inch wrought iron cannons were placed on her deck, nicknamed the Peacemaker and the Oregon. The twin cannons had been specially designed to launch cannonballs weighing more than 200 pounds with a downrange accuracy of nearly 5 miles. Tyler and his cabinet had been promised a ship that would elevate the country's naval power, and for a time, it looked like Captain Stockton had delivered just that. Of course, Stockton wasn't satisfied with just a single warship. He wanted to get enough funding to build a whole fleet of them. And to get the nation's political elite on board with that idea, he arranged three afternoon cruises down the Potomac. The most important of these was scheduled for February 28th, when President Tyler and most of his cabinet members had agreed to attend. The nearly 400 guests were met by Stockton at a dock in Alexandria, Virginia, at about 11 o'clock that morning. They were welcomed by the Marine Corps Band, which played the star-spangled banner on deck as everyone boarded. It was a clear, sunny day, surprisingly warm for late February, and everyone was in high spirits as the Princetons set sail toward Mount Vernon, the residence of former President George Washington. Along the way, Captain Stockton entertained his guests by firing two shots from the Peacemaker cannon. John Erickson had argued against firing the cannons that day, claiming they hadn't been sufficiently tested and were still too dangerous to use. However, Erickson wasn't on deck that morning, allowing Stockton to proceed with the demonstration unimpeded. For the initial two shots, the Peacemaker performed perfectly. According to the New York Herald, everyone on board gasped and cheered as the cannonballs roared into the distance. Quote, striking the water and rebounding five or six times till the eye could no longer follow its progress. Following the spectacle, Captain Stockton led his guests below deck to enjoy a decadent meal of ham, roasted fowl, and plenty of fine wine and champagne. At the table, President Tyler offered a cheerful toast, saying, quote, to the three big guns, the Peacemaker, the Oregon, and Captain Stockton. After lunch, the band resumed playing and an impromptu sing-along began. At some point during the reverie, it was suggested that a third cannonball should be fired in honor of George Washington as the ship sailed past his old home at Mount Vernon. Stockton was hesitant at first, but ultimately gave in to the request. Most of the cabinet, several senators and congressmen, and many of their wives too, gathered topside on the Princeton's bow to watch the third firing. They waited for President Tyler to join them, but when word was sent that he'd been detained below deck, it was decided to proceed without him. The onlookers stood behind Stockton at the base of the Peacemaker, as the gunners packed it with roughly 40 pounds of gunpowder and then loaded it with a 228-pound cannonball. As patriotic music swelled from below, the order was given to fire, and a moment later, the cannon exploded. Fire and molten iron flew across the deck in all directions. When the thick smoke finally cleared, those who had survived the blast found themselves surrounded by dead bodies and severed limbs. One man's arm had been torn from his body and launched across the ship, striking a woman in the head and knocking off her bonnet. And the Secretary of the Navy, the one who'd pressed the hardest for the third firing, was found headless, decapitated by a shard of metal. In total. Six men were killed in the explosion, Secretary of the Navy Thomas Glimmer, Secretary of State Abel Upshur, Captain Beverly Kennan, Attorney Virgil Maxey, Julia Gardner's father David Gardner, and President Tyler's valet, an enslaved man named Armistead. Twenty others were badly injured, including Captain Stockton, who suffered severe burns to his arms and face. Surveying the horror all around him, he reportedly shouted, My God! Would that I were dead too! President Tyler had narrowly escaped death himself, as he was reportedly halfway up the steps when someone below deck happened to start singing one of his favorite songs from his youth. Tyler hung back to listen, and perhaps to flirt a bit more with Julia Gardner, and that brief delay wound up saving his life. The same could not be said for Julia's father, though. The young socialite fainted when she heard the news of his death. Tyler carried her off the ship himself once it had docked and had her escorted back to the White House with him. The president had already proposed marriage to Julia on several occasions, but her mother had always dismissed the idea due to their age difference. Tyler was about 30 years her senior. However, in a somewhat unsettling turn of events, the death of Julia's father led her to view the president as a kind of surrogate, albeit a romantic one. As she later said herself, quote, After I lost my father, I felt differently toward the president. He seemed to fill the place and to be more agreeable in every way than any younger man ever was or could be. And so, four months after the tragedy of the USS Princeton, Tyler and Julia were married in a private ceremony in New York City, making him the first U.S. president to marry while in office. Tyler never won the full presidential term he'd been after. In fact, he didn't even run in the 1844 election. He had managed to cheat death, though, and landed the girl of his dreams, too, so he still fared quite well, all things considered. The same was true for Captain Stockton, who went on to serve in the Mexican-American War and was later elected as a senator. An investigation uncovered a flaw in the Peacemaker's construction that had likely led to its explosion. Apparently, those who had forged the cannon had incorrectly adapted a British hooping technique when affixing iron rings to the cannon's exterior. When the third shot was fired, the faulty hoops gave way and the barrel was torn apart. Despite that damning evidence, no one was held responsible for the explosion, and nobody lost their job over it either. President Tyler had personally shielded Captain Stockton from any blame, telling Congress that it wasn't his fault, and that the tragedy was, quote, invariably incident to the temporal affairs of mankind. Or, to put it another way, these things happen. C'est la vie. Of course, not everyone was willing or able to move on from the event so cavalierly. Commodore William Crane, for instance, was racked with guilt for having signed off on Stockton's project. There were no formal repercussions for his role in the Princeton's creation, and perhaps that's what Crane found so galling. After all, a mistake had been made, yet, according to the federal government, no one was responsible for making it. In the end, Commodore Crane held himself accountable. In March of 1846, he slit his own throat at his office in the Navy Department. Many historians now count him as the final victim of the USS Princeton disaster. I'm Gabe Lussier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you'd like to keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHC Show. You can also rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, or you can write to us directly by emailing thisday at iHeartMedia.com. Thanks as always to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class.